On episode 51, I met with Jesse Gould, the founder and president of the Heroic Hearts Project, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is pioneering psychedelic therapies for military veterans. After being deployed as an army ranger in Afghanistan three times, Jesse founded the Heroic Hearts Project in 2017 to spearhead the acceptance and use of ayahuasca therapy as a means of addressing the current mental health crisis among veterans. Together, we talk about the journey of mental health for veterans and the recent decriminalization efforts and policy changes around psychedelics in the U.S. and Canada. Driven by a mission to help military veterans struggling with mental trauma, Jesse shares his heart in his own inspiring battle with PTSD and his recovery through ayahuasca therapy. Uh, good morning, Bill. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we uh, were finally able to connect. Um, yeah, so I'm Jesse Gould. I'm the founder of a nonprofit called Heroic Hearts Project. And just sort of a quick background, uh, I was actually originally in finance going down that route, um, working at a small investment bank in, in New York. Um, this was 2009. Uh, during the financial crisis, which was probably one of the lead motivators, but around that time, I, I had this desire always to join the military in some form or fashion just to sort of test my mettle and you know uh, my gut feeling said I needed something from that uh, in terms of personal development you know understanding who I was and coming across that challenge and so I did uh, I joined the army I enlisted um, and I did the the straight track to becoming an army ranger going through selection airborne all that kind of stuff um, and through that process uh, I was in uh, I, I did three deployments to Afghanistan, um, and I was a ranger leader of a mortar platoon and had a lot of people under me. And overall, it was it was an amazing experience, really developed me to who I am today and tested me physically, mentally, all the things I was searching for. And just met a lot of great people and, and just, you know, it, it changes you in a lot of good, bad, middle ways, all, all sorts so when I got out, I, I my desire was to go back into finance. Obviously, that was that was my background, and I moved to Tampa. Tried a few things here and there, traveled a little bit. You know, really took advantage of my freedom uh, outside of being controlled by the the government. And I found a job, and I, I I constructed this life, which I think on the outside was great. You know, I had this amazing job at this big international company. I had friends there. You know, I had routine, all this kind of stuff, but. Under the surface of all that, there's just something eating away at me. And, you know, my, my experience, not necessarily unique, but I thought it was unique because a lot of veterans come out of the military and they think if they don't have that like specific like Hollywood movie event where they're like, oh, that's going to mess me up down the line. If they don't have that specific thing or that number of things and they feel like, oh, well, I don't deserve to uh, like there's no reason I should be struggling. There's no reason I should have that. Like if. Yeah, guys have had some seen some crazy stuff, and obviously they're going to have issues. And so I was in that ladder boat where I was like, oh, well, I mean, I, I had some, obviously, like the, the normal wear and tear, and you're put in very stressful and dangerous situations, but nothing super crazy. But at the same time, I just really started struggling with um, some pretty severe depression, anxiety. I was trying to mask it a lot with, you know, overconsumption of alcohol just ranger lifestyle was work hard, play hard. And so that kind of gets you into that sort of like overconsumption mode as well. And it doesn't necessarily work as well in the civilian life. 
so I just found myself in the situation where I was just like, Hey man, looking in the mirror, I'm, I'm pretty miserable and I don't know what to do. I don't know what this is. I don't know what the avenues are to get out of this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, first of all, thank you for your service, obviously as a fellow serviceman and thank you for, you know, being a ranger. I got, I got to say, um, I, I benefited from, the guidance, the instruction, the mentorship, the friendship of a lot of rangers uh, over the years. And, um, you know, as you talk about that aspect of leadership and that sort of sense of uh, expectation that comes with it. And, and, you know, I I think one of the, one of the things I heard you say on, on a previous podcast was that, um, you know, when people leave the military um, there's a lot of, guidance that they get, but it's not specific enough. And I think you talked before about the translation that needs to happen from one life to another. And I know that I encountered, and I I was in the reserve, so I wasn't even active duty full time, but I encountered a lot of people who were both reserve, you know, National Guard and even active duty. And to your point, there's this, uh, there's this sort of fraternity part of, of, of what it is that you go through and the leadership and coming coming off of that or coming away from that, that transition, I think, for any veteran is uh, pretty drastic. And what ends up happening, I think, personally, is a lot of stuff surfaces, right? There's a lot of stuff that we had that we didn't necessarily know about, and, and, and it surfaces in different ways. And so you talk about depression and mental health. You know, it's, it's so great to have these conversations now. And you probably remember in your time, and I remember in my time in the service, we couldn't talk about mental health. Like it, it was a career ender. Um, I remember when I was a cadet and, uh, you know, lost a relative and it took me into kind of a spiral of, of depression. And I was so fearful being at the army physical, you know, and them asking you, Hey, you know, what, how are you feeling or whatever? I remember I was getting the physical where you get the EKG and the heart thing and you got all those things strapped up to you. And what's really interesting was my, uh, you know, my heart was racing and my, my brain activity was going c- completely haywire. And they were asking me things like, do you suffer epilepsy? And I was like, no, but what, what, it, what it was doing was I was trying so hard to hide the sense of like, I struggle with mental health and I, and I, and, and I had, you know, struggling with depression that I was, that I was putting my body into this sort of, uh, fight or flight and all the machines were reading it. Right. Um, and it was because I was so fearful about talking about this. So, so I think it's interesting, you know, this aspect of the, the veterans are people that are, I think, inherently uh, highly critical of themselves. And oftentimes we won't get that help. I do think that is changing. It has definitely changed. And part of that is the work that, that, you, that you're doing. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about kind of what led you to, uh, to start this nonprofit, but also if you can unpack a little bit of how you found your way to psychedelics. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot this year. And I, one of the things I'd love to get into talking to you about this year, the landscape has changed this year um, in decriminalization of psychedelics in a lot of places, Oregon, California, DC, others. So there's been a huge amount of change in just a short period of time um, that I'd love to get into. But, but first and foremost, we'd love to kind of hear about how you found your path there and then what led you to start essentially this nonprofit, which is helping veterans um, heal. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I also kind of want to unpack some of the things you're saying too, of, of, you know, like in your situation, I had a similar situation. You also don't have the tools because you're not the mental health professional to talk about what you're going through. You're just, you're feeling these things. And if they don't have a, a label or, or a cause or anything like that, you're not, you're not the one that knows like what this is. Um, and I remember like my out processing, you know, they do try on like certain things, they push you through it. But I, I went to the psychologist room and it was essentially like a two second conversation where he was just like, nothing wrong with you. Nope. Okay, good. Check off. And that was like my out processing, which is kind of absurd, but that's the, the lifestyle. But it's also like when you're in it, you're, it's, it's such a high octane thing. And like what you're saying, it comes up to the surface. You know, I feel like when you, you know, corporate world or whatever is going to most likely be a slower sort of drive than a lot of the things you're going to encounter in military. And that's when a lot of the stuff comes up. And that's what we're seeing in COVID times where people don't have the distractions. They still have the Netflix, but they don't have like, you know, the, the same going to friends every weekend or every night to kind of distract themselves or they get sort of more in this mundane routine where then they have to start confronting with this. And the other, other point I want to touch is, you know, the army does try, I went through like ACAP and they essentially like make sure you have a suit and make sure you have a resume, but they don't do the trend, the mental health transition. And, you know, I've said this a lot and I, I'm a big believer in ceremony and I'm a big believer in full body, full mind preparation. And when you consider the military, it's all an indoctrination program. Like you go through basic, through ranger, you go through ranger. Uh, the original one is called ranger indoctrination program. Um, and this is all to get you to think like a soldier, get you to think like a unit, get you to think um, where you're not actually not thinking, where you're reacting to either the, the stimulus or reacting to orders or what have you, working as a cohesive unit. But there's no transition. There's no intense situation where it's like, OK, well, now you're going to be a civilian. And so what I've seen personally, in my own opinion, is you see a lot of these, especially veterans that have been in like very intense like special ops training they're still stuck in that mode in a lot of ways. And there are good things like discipline, but there are a lot of things that don't necessarily lead to positive mental health dynamics within the civilian world. And you see how a lot of them in, interact with their family where they treat their family almost like a military unit or, you know, they might be more predisposed to anger or, or frustration when the corporate world or the, the business world isn't working the same way. And so there's not, I see a lot of veterans that are almost like one foot in one foot out without any means or tools to transition. And as I said before, this doesn't mean you're going to lose your whole military dynamic, but you know, one of the things that, that, that military teaches is adapt and overcome. You're, you're going to be in different situations. You do have to change how you interact with that situation, how you adapt to it to become successful. You can't just use a hammer on every single thing. Um, and so I think those are some of the things in terms of mental health that we really need to sort of sit down and talk of, like, how do we better transition veterans to be successful uh, in all forms of support, you know, not only mental health, physical health, uh, job health, all that kind of stuff, social health. Um, and so that's what I found my situation in where, you know, it was really sort of this pat on the back, good job. Uh, and when I started having these issues, I, I went to the VA, I did, you know, the Google searches and try to figure it out on my own and did sort of the checklist of, you know, positive health, you know, thing, you know, getting back in shape, uh, trying to eat healthy, positive social environments, hobbies, all that kind of stuff. I went to the VA, 
I was like, hey, I don't think I really need to talk to somebody, but if it's offered to me, let's talk to somebody and maybe they can help me figure this out. And unfortunately, the VA was kind of a dead end because essentially, if I wasn't willing to go on medication, there's a limited amount that they could help me, which was unfortunate. And so there, I found myself in this situation where I knew I was struggling. There weren't the professionals who were supposed to help me didn't have answers for me. And so I really had to start figuring this out on my own. But it was this back and forth because you're in the midst of struggling for it. So you like you know, are hung over and then like, oh shit, I shouldn't do that again. And you're like, why am I doing this? And then, you know, you get drink again. And, but fortunately, you know, through that struggle, I found like, okay, these are possible things I'm struggling with. These are possible reasons. I was a mortarman. And so I had to learn on my own that, um, excessive exposure to concussive force is possibly one of the reasons I was struggling with some of the things I was struggling with. But that wasn't, you know, told to me by anybody who should have told me that. Um, and so it was this combination of self-discovery and, and really trying to figure it out. Fortunately, I had the intuition where red flags were going off. And, you know, sometimes I ignore them, but sometimes I'd pay attention. And I just got to this almost evolving spot where, fortunately, I never crossed that line to where it was like permanently altering my life. But I did get pretty close to where you know, just risky behavior, just spots where it was just like, what the hell am I doing? And I just kind of realized like, hey, if I tracked it every day, there's more days during this week that I was unhappy than I was happy. And if I continue that formula, that's not a, a winning formula for, you know, life in general. And that's just going to lead to very bad, unhealthy situations, decisions that fortunately, I was still at the spot where I could turn it around. But Sometimes you get past that spot and then you're, you're kind of even in a worse situation. Um, around that time, uh, I, I heard about ayahuasca just because it's, it's become more and more in sort of, you know, common media and, and press and all that kind of stuff. And I had no background in psychedelics, drugs in general. I really didn't identify myself as that. It's fine for anybody else. But for me, it was just like, all right, I drink a lot. That's my vice. I don't need any other vices. I know I viewed them all as escapism psychedelics. I kind of viewed like, cool, you, you did this great. Good for you. Like it doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, but I heard about ayahuasca in particular. And again, my reaction was that same uh, sort of dismissive kind of stigma uh, of what most people would probably react. But for whatever reason, it kind of planted a seed in, in my, my head and, you know, just kind of bored at work. I'd probably, you know, be taking a break from Excel spreadsheets and just kind of like, okay, look up ayahuasca. This is kind of interesting. And gradually, for whatever reason, I think it just sort of, a, my brain kind of convinced itself that like, hey, maybe this is an option. And I think because ayahuasca in itself, for people who are not familiar it is a combination at the at the base of two plants that stem from the Amazon jungle. When these two plants, it's a it's a vine and a, a leaf. Uh, when they're combined, they form a very powerful hallucinogenic psychedelic uh, sort of brew tea, um, and it's been used for thousands, if not more, of years uh, by indigenous tribes throughout the Amazon. And for me, I think because it had that culture, because it had been used in the ceremonial tribal setting for health, for uh, the, the purposes of the tribe. I think it kind of like changed, it, it, it allowed me of like, this is different than just taking drugs. This is different than, you know, just getting high. Um, and so eventually, you know, I just got to this point again, out of necessity, where it's just like, all right, well, I'm not happy at my job. 
I know that needs to change. I'm not necessarily happy where I'm at right now. There's not many things that I can put on a list where it's like, this is great in my life right now. And this is worth preserving. And so fortunately I was at that spot of like, all right, well, I don't know, maybe a clean slate. Let's try this out. And so I just kind of took that leap of faith and, um, bought a one-way ticket to Peru, left my job, you know, fortunately I was still able to do that. Uh, I was able to, you know, get to a financially healthy spot to where I could take some time off, really figure it out. I just knew I had to. And so, you know, that led me to Peru and led me to, you know, my first major ayahuasca experience. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a lot I'd like to unpack there, but, but, uh, before, before I unpack a little bit, I, I always like to remind people of kind of, um, the power of words, right? And and I, in, in sort of my research and uh, study of this topic, you know, as as people know, psychedelics, they think of you, you know the 1960s, right? They think of they think of a hippie, they think of someone strung out, um, and and you talk about ayahuasca being this natural plant, uh, this vine and 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 brewed with a leaf, um, and it's really interesting because even the root of the word psychedelic. You know, two Greek words, psyche and delos, psyche meaning soul and delos meaning clear or manifesting clear. You know, it's interesting you talked about you You said you wanted a clean slate. Um, you wanted to clear that out. And I'm curious, as you were doing, you know, that research and trying to figure out about um, what called you, um, did you know of the, did you know from your reading the, the true benefits of something like ayahuasca that it would really do that flushing of the soul of some sort, or was that something that you didn't really have a, a full awareness of until you went down to Peru and, and experienced it? Yeah, I really didn't have a full awareness of it. It was kind of more of like, this causes big um, shifts in perception. I knew that sort of dynamic and I just knew as many of us do. And especially that's one of the big dangers of mental health, you know, especially depression or, or anxiety is you almost get caught in this vortex. And so like when you are depressed, you know, everything turns gray and it can almost be nearly impossible when you're in that situation to see outside of that world, you know, and that's what leads to uh, unfortunately suicide where people just can't see that there is a light, that there is a way to get out of it. And they're just like, oh, this is how I'm going to be forever. And that's a very dangerous thing because you get caught into these sort of like world where you can't see outside of it. And so I didn't know what the answers were. I just knew whatever I was trying, I was just, I just kept hitting my head against the same wall, you know, and, and I thought, you know, from the outside, as I said before, on the superficial checklist, this is what I should be doing. And this is what should make me happy. And it wasn't. And so I knew at the very least, this was something that was powerful that could maybe alter my perception on, on myself or the world around me. But beyond that, you know, I had I had no inclination at that time. I would have said like, oh, this is going to cure my depression. I'm doing this for these specific mental health or, or, re or reasons. It was really just a very loose, um, you know, fortunately, I have a pretty strong gut feeling about certain things. And when it is, you know, sounding the horns on something that strong, I just tend to to go for it. It's sort of the same with the military, like. At that time, I couldn't give a very succinct reason why I wanted to join the military. I just knew that was the path that I had to take to become the person I want to. And so it's sort of that same same dynamic. And for that reason, I really didn't tell my friends or family that I was going. They knew I was traveling to Peru and I was just like, hey, I just need to sort of reset and kind of view my life just because I don't feel like I'm, I'm living to my fullest potential. Uh, but I didn't mention that because I didn't want 
the excess baggage of people's worries, people's opinions. And I had no idea why I was doing it really either. It was just kind of this sort of loose uh, calling, I guess you could say, that, that led me there. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. A lot of times, and I've, I've, the research I've done has brought me across, obviously, I've listened to a lot of Tim Ferriss podcasts, and um, that led me to the Third Wave podcast, which led me to you. And I've watched, you know, documentaries like Trip of Compassion and, and other things that talk about um, these experiences for people. So, so I'm curious, like this aspect of going down to Peru um, for the ayahuasca journey, but you also said like, not telling friends, not necessarily telling families. Um, in in your in your studies of this and your work in this space with veterans, do you find that narrative changing a little bit? Maybe this year because there's more discussion around, you know, decriminalization of psychedelics, um, or is it still sort of something that people want to do and not necessarily? advertise or talk about? Is it is it sacred? There's a question around the ritual part of this too, which is you don't want to dilute something by taking the experience and and sort of shouting it from the rooftops. Does it dilute it? Is, is, is there a concern there? I think there's a happy medium. Um, but you still, I mean, we definitely are in a transition. Unfortunately, we are in a spot, even in the past few years, it's, it's, it's changed monumentally. But we are in a spot where it is becoming more known, accepted, and talked about. And I don't think that's a bad thing um, because a lot of times when we send veterans uh, to ayahuasca or to other psychedelic ceremonies, we want to make sure that you know their wife or their family, their, their, their relatives are okay with it. Because especially somebody that's really close to them, if they go and they like go under deceit, um, then that's going to cause rifts. But also what we also find, which can be tricky, and you want to make sure, especially the spouses, is that the spouses often have been dealing with the PTSD or the depression for years and years and years. And sometimes it can cause some struggle because if the veteran comes home um, and gets a pretty profound experience and it really helps them out, but then the wife or the husband is like, hey, like, it's cool you change. One, I don't really believe it, or I'm skeptical. And two, that doesn't change a lot of the stuff I've had to go through. And so we have to be very conscientious of there. And, and you know, a lot of mental health, this psychedelics can be very powerful tools for a certain part of the mental health journey, but it's a long journey. And part of that journey is support. You really need support system. So if you just go back and you're completely isolated, it's not going to have as big of an effect as if you go back and you're surrounded by loved ones, you're surrounded by friends, because there are times when, you know, maybe some anxiety or depression will come back and you need that support system. You need that safety net. Um, but on the other side, on the, the extreme, we also don't want people to just like, I did this, everybody should do it. And that's not what heroic hearts is about either. Um, it's, we don't think this is for everybody. We're not trying to push anybody. We're not just trying to like shove like any sort of psychedelic down people's mouths. It's not a question of the more, the better. It's a question of assessing each person where they're at. If they are interested informing them and giving them all the information so that they can make an informed, safe decision. And if they do decide that this is something for them and we think that, you know, it's, it's a good spot for them, then we will provide as much support as possible. Um, and so I think all of that, and we want people to be ambassadors of it when they go, and they often are because they're like, hey, this was amazing. I want to share it with my, my, my friends and stuff like that. 
But we also warn against going down those rabbit holes of really pressuring other people to go. Because I've, I've gone down that myself. You, you want to scream on top of the mountain, and that's great. But everybody is on their own healing path. And what often tends to happen, is especially when we find something that's good, we start to judge other people of like, oh, you're going through this. You're doing this. I know what can help you. And one, that judgment is not good for you because that's your ego uh, sort of um, pushing some of your stuff on other people. But two, you can't push other people to make this big decision, especially something like ayahuasca. It's very powerful. It can be very intense. The person has to decide that they are on that path. They are, it's the right timing for them. If there's oftentimes if there's pressure, then they're going to be going there um, because they – not because of their own need or want, but because they want to satisfy this other person. And oftentimes when that happens and they're not going to like fully give themselves to the experience, they're not going to fully take as much as they possibly can. And so it, it is this sort of balance there. Um, there is, you know, sacredness to the ceremony and we do have to be extra cautious of that as it becomes more popular. Uh, you know, heroic hearts is trying to become, you know, a big enough name, within the space to where we can say like, Hey, we need to be cautious of this because what does tend to happen is as economics get involved and as things get more popular, sometimes tradition and the people that originate this kind of get trampled under, under the masses of going there. So, you know, I am very conscientious of that. We work with like retreat centers that, that preserve the, 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 the native intelligence and, and, and understanding of all this. Um, and so that is something that we are, you know, we try to be conscious of because this is, it is a tidal wave. It is changing. And we want to make our, we want to make sure that it happens in a very respectful uh, way to all parties involved. Yeah. There's, there's, um, I once heard someone describe it as sort of the three eyes, uh, integrity, intention, and integration. So the, the integrity with which you go into the experience of a psychedelic journey is very, very important. As you said, you, it can't be duplicitous, right? You can't, you can't be, um, as you said, if there's a spouse that's been caring for someone during a very depressive state or PTSD or even suicidation, you can't go off to this journey, have a complete transformative experience, essentially rewire your brain and come back to someone have them see you transformed in, in mind and heart and soul and body and not, not, not be honest with them. I think the other, the other piece I'd love for you to dig into is intention because from the, from the things that I've seen and watched and um, you know, I've studied a little bit of the work that's coming out of maps and um, I'm a Johns Hopkins graduate and they're doing a lot of work in this space as well. So I stay very close to the research that comes out of Johns Hopkins and it's actually one of the, one of the places I'm putting some of my resources towards because uh, this is truly transformative to people that I know personally. Um, and I think that aspect of intention is really important. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when you, when you talk about the ceremony and the ritual, I think intention, there's, there's a, there's a key piece of that. It's the centerpiece to this, which is setting an intention for what you want out of this uh, experience. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for folks that may not know as much about this ceremony uh, part of ayahuasca. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so we're in an interesting stage right now um, because we're seeing more and more the adaptation or adoption of psychedelic treatments 
in the Western model. So obviously, you know, especially in the case of ayahuasca and to some degree with, with uh, psilocybin and some of these other um, psychedelic or, or healing plants, you know, the, the indigenous traditions, they've been doing it in, the, in their tribe and, and different traditions depending on where you go. But it's a different scenario just because their culture is different, their, their lifestyle is different, the, the influences, the, the traumas are all very different. And so what you're seeing now is sort of a meshing of the two worlds where, you know, Western perspective is going to be unique to uh, Amazonian perspective. And we, you know, have been from day one born with this sort of like scientific method and, and like psychology as it is right now. So we are trying to mesh that because you do need to be conscientious of both sides. Um, and that's so one of the things that Heroic Hearts Project was developed to do is just that in terms of not only educate, but we are developing, we've developed this program to support veterans from beginning to end as much as possible. So not only facilitating their journey to centers that do this safely, respectfully, as we, as we just mentioned, um, and preserve some of the, the traditions, uh, but also the support where it's preparation, you know, like let's say you're going to Peru or, or some other place, uh, sort of the basic logistics, but then also what you say in terms of intention and integration. So integration practices are a very relatively new thing. And that has come about just because, as we've kind of mentioned, the psychedelic experience can be very profound. It can be very intense. It can be very, like you know, blast you to outer space, throw all sorts of different information and, and, and sort of puzzles at you. Um, and it can just in that there can be a lot of healing. There can be a lot of rewiring, but it is only enhanced when there is um, this before and afterwards sort of follow up support, uh, talking through it, interpretation. And one of the things that has become uh, popular is this 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 uh, notion of intentions. And so, especially with ayahuasca, you'll, you'll get different sort of opinions. Um, some places you go, some shamans that you work with, they're not about intentions. They, they just say, go into it and it'll lead you to where you are. Uh, for heroic hearts, we really like sort of the practice of intentions. And because it is one of those things where, to, to give people a de definition, intention is what you are seeking through this experience. And that's not, that's different from expectation. It's not, you know, a laundry list of like, oh, I saw, you know, Bill had this effect, or I saw that he got rid of his anxiety. That's exactly what I want. And I want to see aliens and dragons in this experience. That's not, those are expectations and those are bad because, you know, no matter what, the psychedelics can interact with your brain in a very complex way. Every journey is a little bit different. And what they often say is you'll get the healing that you need, not the healing that you want. Because oftentimes we are, ourselves are the dumbest people to diagnose what we're actually going on because we, our brains are very complicated tools that actually suppress a lot of trauma for our sake of survival, for our sake of being able to cope with day-to-day -day life and when, when there's severe trauma. And so intentions are kind of more of like looking inwards, uh, trying to see what has been bothering you, what dynamics or what trauma, what um, symptoms you've been having that you really want to explore, that you want to explore within yourself. And so they tend to be a little bit more general and they tend to be kind of like, hey, so for Jesse, um, I've, I've just been very, I've been struggling. I've been going off on these, these cliffs of depression. Uh, the only means I, I know is, is, you know, using alcohol 
uh, why, why, what's causing this anxiety? What, what, what's inside of me that's so fractured? Like what, what I want to, I want to explore that fracture. I want to explore that ball of anxiety that comes in my chest. Like I want to take a deep dive into that. And maybe I want to be able to enjoy my surroundings a little bit more. So maybe I want to explore, um, like enjoyment or, or contentment. So those are kind of a little bit more open-ended. And the reason I like them is because no matter what, if, I were to go into the ayahuasca experience, it might just completely, you know, clear the table of all those and show me, you know, maybe this is your bad relationship with some family member and this is what we need to explore right, right now. But the pure practice of looking inwards is almost like an exercise. And that's what we're seeing a lot with a lot of trauma and, and mental health, mental development is that it, like anything else, is an exercise. The more you do it, the more you practice it, the more you're going to be in tune with what um, your emotions, what your subconscious is saying that is almost screaming that causes these negative behaviors, these negative patterns. They're always stemming from something and some part of your brain knows it. It's just a question of how connected you are to that part of the brain, or are you very good at compartmentalizing, suppressing this kind of stuff? This is all about opening. This is all about almost bridging a communication pipeline between your subconscious and conscious, um, which often comes about in, in what people call intuition. Intuition is often kind of more in the, the form of feeling. A lot of veterans will know about this. They'll be in a situation where they can't put their finger on it. Uh, they can't necessarily describe it, but they know the situation's off or they know something's about to happen. That's because you're trained and your subconscious is a very, you know, um, complex, extremely smart macro computer that can calculate all these different variables at the same time, similar to trauma, where your subconscious will know that these things are bothering you and it'll manifest itself in consumption of substances, anger, depression, all that kind of stuff. And so intentions started the practice. It's almost like going to the gym of like, okay, let's start working out this part of my brain. Let's look in, let's, let's try to figure this out. The more you do it, uh, the more you're going to be better at it and the less likely you are to sort of suppress a lot of these these things. Psychedelics really allow that to be, they, they, it's almost like that process on steroids. It just, it allows you to, to, to do that in a much more efficient way. You're almost in this sort of um, dreamlike state where you can explore it, but you still need to practice that afterwards because it gives you this opportunity to, to know that but if you just kind of go back and kind of like zone out and just go, you know, become like a social media robot again, then obviously it's probably going to come back up. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting point around the integration. You know, one of the questions I, I've had thinking about this is when someone goes and has this this amazing experience where they essentially access parts of their brain that we typically don't ever access. You know, there's there's different statistics that say we typically access anywhere between 10 and 12, I think 12 is generous, but percent of, percent of our brain at one time. And so the, through the experience of the, the DMT, it, it, my understanding is you access, you light up different parts of your brain, the so subconscious, the, the areas that you've packed away. When somebody comes back from that experience, um, you know, you go down, you have this transformative experience, but then you get back on a plane and you come home and let's say you're part of a corporate finance job. It's got to be really tough, I'm imagining, to just sort of slot back in there because 
do you see things differently? I imagine, you know, some of the testimonies I read, people see patterns, they see, they see sacred geometry, they, they see things, the plant medicine, right, the intelligence of plants, um, they sort of see the world completely differently. And I imagine it would be very difficult to just sit down at a keyboard and just peck away at like the Excel spreadsheet, nothing against Excel spreadsheets, but how is that for people when they sort of, how was that for you when you came back uh, to sort of slot back in and, and not question everything? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, everybody's different and everybody interprets things differently. So you're going to get the whole spectrum of how people interact with it um, and how much it sort of changes their perspective or bolsters their perspective or, or what have you. Um, and for me, fortunately, like I said, because I bought that like one way ticket, I had the opportunity to just sort of, you know, kind of continue to explore around and, and travel in Peru and Colombia and just sort of chill and back even, you know, it wasn't really that long ago. This was 2017. But even then, the, you know, this discussion of integration was not was, you know, maybe a few people were talking about it, but it really was underdeveloped at that point, you know. Um, and so I was pretty much left to my own devices to sort of figure it out. And like, that was weird. Like, what's going on? I, I don't really know those messages. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can be intense, uh, especially what psychedelics do is that they make you hypersensitive to pretty much all stimulus. And so that's not only like you, if you go in a psychedelic experience, uh, you notice that your hearing is super fine tuned, your, your eyesight, you can be very sensitive to light, but it's the same thing with, with emotions or with other people. Uh, we've all had that experience where you're next to like a very high energy person and it almost like makes you anxious or almost like drains your energy. That's even more so. And so imagine going into an airport where you're even more um, like sensitive to that. And so it can't, so we, we give people some tips and we warn them about it. And, you know, a lot of the guidance is like, especially a couple weeks, a week or two weeks afterwards, really be conscientious, like try to avoid social media, especially now try to avoid the news, um, you know, try to avoid too many people interactions and what you do. And we also warn them, like, you know, you will go back and sometimes, you know, you have this group of people and you just find, you reassess some of the people you surround yourself with. Like there are those people that are just constantly needing, 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 or they're, you can tell that they're just kind of this toxic energy, this toxic presence. And sometimes, you know, you might have to cut ties with it. Uh, a lot of this is almost like what they say with, you know, uh, addiction recovery is that, you know, because we are addicted to certain parts of our behaviors, certain patterns, these negative patterns just reinforce where like the, the negative mental health uh, situations that we're in of, you know, me being in the routine of going to that bar like every Thursday and feeling like, oh, if I didn't go there Thursday or Friday, then I'd miss out on these people, which just reinforced my depression or to reinforce a lot of other things. And you have to make those changes. So like with addiction, they say you might have to change some of your friend group. You might have to change some of your hot habits, because if you go right back into that, going to form these same patterns in your brain and it's all about reinforcing either good or negative patterns in, in your brain at that point so i mean it can be very tricky um and you know like i said before sometimes certain things do come back up it's all part of the processing of the the purging of it uh, and it can be very intense and so it's just being prepared being having the tools um but also being realistic you know we don't want people to go off sometimes there have been cases where people like 
like you said, go and like, oh, I can't go into the real world. And you kind of have to like pump the brakes. And I think, again, that's what heroic hearts can do uh, with with the support of like, hey, man, like I, kn- I know it can be hard to go in the real world, but, you know, you do have to play the game a little bit like you do have to make money. You can't just like immediately go cabin in the woods style um, like you have a family, like take care of them. And there is honor and there is um, purpose in all that. Maybe not do it the same way. Maybe there's ways you can you can mix in the old with this new, but it's not about just like cleaning slate and going home and like quitting your job and, and becoming a, you know, like a hobo hippie traveler, that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes there is that sort of urge of like, Oh, I just saw this amazing kind of stuff. Um, but that's where having guidance and that's where having other people support like, Hey man, I know where you're coming from. It is crazy, but there is beauty in, 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 ha- in, in your day-to-day job and providing for your family and, and going through this, you might not like this job. So maybe look for other jobs that are more tailored to you, but don't just, you know, mess up your life right now. And so that's where the support. And the only other thing is, you know, and that's where we're coming to right now is heroic hearts and what we do. And this, treatment is just one piece of the puzzle um and that's why we 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 often try to work with other other nonprofits, other groups we wish the va was a little bit more keen on this and helping out uh, especially with their budget but that's just not the case like we are one part of it we can really help people sort of revitalize refresh um you know re re um re rewire some parts of people's brains and really give them recipes for success, but they still need pipelines for other ways that they can continue to explore. You know, there's like a group called veterans walk and talk and they do hiking things, something like that, where, or activity groups, yoga groups, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, group veteran groups that help them find jobs. We're just one piece of the puzzle. And this is a very complex thing. Mental health is not just one decision or one pill. It's a whole lifestyle. It's how you frame it. But it's also, as I said before, support. You need that support from beginning to end um, and other veterans to go through it. And that's what we're trying to build with people. And that's why conversations like this are very helpful because people need to realize that it's not you're going to go to the Amazon and be cured and now, you know, make a million dollars at work and everything's going to be good. You know, life is still hard and we have to figure out ways of working together to to, you know, it's still going to be hard, but to, to support each other to where you're not falling into the same pits that you were. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One of the, one of the quotes I saw on your website was, you know, the power of, of this work in psychedelics really transforming and being in the next generation of psychotherapy. And as you talked about, you know, the veteran ecosystem itself is, is, uh, is very complex the veteran mental health ecosystem is very complex and there's no one piece that really solves, um, you know, every, every pain. I would love for your, your thoughts on this aspect because I, I also have, you know, heard that there's a lot of people that for years and years and years and years have been on anti-anxiety meds, have been on, you know, um, uh, a pill a day kind of thing. And, uh, I don't think we need to restate it. That's a multi-billion dollar industry. And I've also read that people go and have these psychedelic experiences and it actually can equate to a decade or more worth of therapy. And people then come off of some of these uh, anti-anxiety medications. Has there been discussion around the impact of that? I I mean, in one aspect, people say, oh, 
big business would love to get into to the to the psychedelics, right? But then the other side of it, you say, well, if everybody or many people take this experience and all of a sudden no longer need that prescription, that's a huge revenue hit. So I'm curious, is that something that is debated a lot in this space? Um, you know, you talked about the budget that the VA has and where all that money goes to. I mean, we don't need to rehash it here. People can look it up themselves. But the overprescription that goes out to the numbing of people is tragic. So I would love your thoughts on that. Is that something that's up, like being debated right now? Is that something that's on the horizon? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I want to start off by saying too, uh, you know, it's not my job. I'm not trying to demonize like any medication. And I know you aren't either because, you know, some of these medications can be life-saving and I've seen it. And, you know, sometimes I can come across as like, oh, no pills and all that kind of stuff. And that's not the case at all. But I think we, many in the veteran community can agree that there is an overprescription problem. And if you just even look at the VA documents, it's, that's kind of like their uh, quota fulfillment of like, okay, we got this guy on medications. He's good to go. We'll, we'll check back in. And I think that's a bad business model. And if you also look at sort of the efficacy of some of these medications and also just how little we understand them and some of the damage that they can do, and especially with side effects, those are things that we really need to assess, um, which have not been assessed uh, effectively. Um, there is, I mean, less, I mean, there is a discussion, but it's less, it's more so that it's the presence there. You know, I mean, especially at this stage, it's not like there's a specific tool to counteract the power of, you know, a pharmaceutical lobby. Um, and, you know, no matter what, because of the efficacy of these psychedelics, it's it's almost an inevitable force that I think will overtake it and it will just have to change the model. You know, people are still going to make money no matter what. It's the system that, that capitalism is. I think it's just going to have to change from less of a, on the mental health side, less of a pill-based sort of traditional medicine kind of style to more of an experiential uh, sort of style. And you're already seeing that with like clinics where they're really focused on experience and, and incorporating this kind of stuff. And so it's just, you know, I think it's going to be an evolution of how the business model really, really transforms there because less and less people are going to want to just like take these pills, which we see may not actually be effective and may actually, um, you know, hamper people's mental health um, pursuits in terms of how it actually does play and, you know, I mean, this is kind of going there, there's evidence there and, you, you know, you don't want to go too conspiratorial, obviously, with all of this kind of stuff. But I mean, the, the biggest holdup for a lot of this is sort of the drug scheduling system, uh, the drug policy uh, on a federal, but also an international basis. And that the reason, you know, often what we come across is people, especially like any sort of government institution, mm -hmm you'll say like, hey, these are very effective and we've seen some amazing results, but that's all anecdotal or, or very early scientific sort of results. And so people say, well, well show me the evidence. And it's this weird catch-22 because since psychedelics and even cannabis are schedule one, people don't realize how limiting that is for actual research. Like that has essentially cut off all access and ability to research these substances for decades and decades, essentially since the 50s. It's only reemerged a little bit with the MDMA in the 80s and 90s, and now really with MDMA for sure and, and psychedelics. 
but a lot of that has become is just because of private um, donations. It's not because of government grants. So what people don't realize is when something is Schedule One, it cuts off federal funding for research, and especially something that's plant based like cannabis or psychedelics like mushrooms or ayahuasca. There's no patent, and so there's no economic means for, or there's no economic incentive for somebody like Pfizer to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars researching this because if they prove that it's effective, they can't patent it. A lot of the reasons that psilocybin is actually coming about is because they found a way to patent the the synthesizing process, and so they kind of found a way around it. Um, and so that's the unfortunate thing. Without government funding, government funding is absolutely necessary for these things that can be very effective but don't necessarily have a good economic model. But because of the stigma around drugs and because of drug policy, and then you can kind of go into you know drug war, who's making money off of that, um, all this kind of stuff. It's very uh, – it can be very complicated, and at the end of the day, there's not going to be a lot of good players and you know people making money off of a lot of suffering in many different boats. Uh, but that's the biggest holdup is that because these things are Schedule 1, it's extremely, extremely hard to research it. And when there's no research, then you can't change policy because it's this endless loop of, you know, we'll show us research, but you can't research it, so we can't change the policy. And so then you're just kind of constantly in this weird churn there. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, there's there's been a lot of grassroots efforts that have, you know, MAPS is the... The organization that's doing the, the the breakthrough MDMA study, and they just, I think they just finalized their their third stage trials, and MDMA was well above and beyond um, the, 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 the 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 in terms of showing uh, benefits for PTSD, way better than any other therapy out there. That was all privately funded, and they've really brought the conversation around this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that is tricky. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be pushback. I'm sure there's going to be – so you're already seeing it in the cannabis industry where um, it started to be one thing and then, you know, major players are now trying to make it their own sort of thing. So it's going to be the same thing in, in, in psychedelics. Uh, it's just a question of – like, again, hopefully on one side, Heroic Hearts Project is trying to be an advocate and we're trying to, you know, pump the brakes when necessary and steer it in the right direction at the end of the day you know, we're all about representing the veteran voice in this. And, you know, we want them to have effective, affordable treatment. That's not just like they have to pay tens of thousands to get a ketamine treatment or something like that, you know? And so that's what we're trying to do and trying to amplify our voice enough to where we have a, a seat at the table. Yeah, that kind of brings me to to sort of my last question. Um, it's it's specifically around the four goals that you that you all have as an organization at Heroic Hearts. You you talk about the importance of connecting, informing, documenting, and then fighting. So I think the documenting part is interesting. You just described the catch twenty two, which is, you know, you can't do the research because it's classified in a in a way that prevents you from getting access to the to the dollars and the research in the mines. When when you talk about the documenting specifically. Is that essentially what you're documenting? Are you all doing some studies, some of your own research to, to then eventually turn over to people to say, look, here's the evidence um, through, through a, a unique group of people, veterans, who carry a tremendous amount of weight and expectation and service. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think it's too much to ask to, to, to feel okay, to be healed, to not have to live in terror every single day. So is that the document portion of, of kind of those four goals? 
Yeah, I mean, the documentation comes in two forms. So there is, we have this valuable resource, so to speak, in terms of we are sending veterans to uh, these different psychedelic uh, centers, retreats, clinics, and we're trying to capture as much, you know, um, scientific method-based evidence as possible. And so fortunately, we've been able to partner with uh, University of Georgia, University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, we're in the process of working with some international universities. So we have a study with with ayahuasca. Uh, one is more on the psychological side where veterans took surveys before, official surveys afterwards and follow up. And we've been moving more and more into taking biological samples as well. We're one of the first to do gut microbiome, the effects of uh, these, these substances actually on the, the microorganisms in the person's stomach, because that has been shown to have a direct link to, direct link to uh, the brain and, and mental health and all these other things. We're, you know, we're branching into to taking blood samples. Uh, next year, we're really hoping to do sort of the first of its kind psilocybin study uh, in Jamaica, where we're going to not only test the psychological effects, but also the effects possibly on healing the brain from certain traumatic brain injury. Um, and, you know, again, it's really sort of a, a local grassroots kind of thing. It's it's expensive, but we found sort of ways of kind of moving around that and, you know, doing what we can. It might be not huge, you know, like thousands and thousands of people, but it's still for future researchers might be able to point them into new directions because we really haven't researched a lot of these substances. And so even small, you know, even um, indications of what might be at play, what mechanisms are working, why is this working that way, will help future investigators and add to sort of the literature that will help push this forward or at least bring the conversation. Conversation is the most important. The second part of documenting it is kind of more on the hearts and minds side, is having these veterans tell their story, be on video, write about it, we're going to be starting a blog where veterans kind of, uh, you know, guests, guests write on our blog and tell about their experience. Because at the end of the day, you know, what changes minds is more of the emotional connection. You know, you need the sort of research and the science and, you know, at some level to change policy. But what's going to get people on your side and what's going to change people's perspective of this is when they see a veteran that's somebody they know or somebody similar that they know or somebody that they can that appeals to them. And them telling these pretty profound stories of them struggling for 10 years and this being the first light in their life that they've seen for, for a long time. And, you know, both sides are just as important. And we're trying to push both uh, as responsibly and, and as truthfully as possible. You know, we're not here to, you know, we're, we're not a propaganda organization. We're just trying to represent this as, as honestly and as truthfully as possible. Yeah, I very much appreciate that. You know, the 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 fight part of your your goals too is really important, right? Fight for those who who, who fought for for others, for us. Um, as we wrap up here, I would love for you just to share with the listeners where some where can they find more information about heroic arts, um, and specifically if there's ways for people to get involved, uh, maybe maybe one or two tips uh, to kind of point them to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I said, we're a registered 501c3 nonprofit. So we go off of donations and, you know, we're an all volunteer organization. So even myself, none of us get paid, uh, through donations at all. We try to keep it as straight as possible to where your money goes to facilitating veterans going to these centers. So, you know, helping with flight costs, helping with the facility costs, and then the coaching costs. 
we try to keep that as as one for one as as possible. Um, and so, if you are able to donate, it's tax deductible. Heroicheartsproject.org is our website. We're on all major social medias. The main one is is Instagram, but we have a Facebook group as well. You know, our Instagram. If you want to keep up with uh, current research around all things veterans, psychedelics, it's we we constantly um, have posts about that. Um, and yeah, so the other way that people can help out, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's a tough time, especially financially, you know, even a small amount can help, but if you just want to donate time expertise, uh, we started a ambassador program, uh, this past year. And so you can go on our website, ways to support and fill out the ambassador application. And that's us trying to create this program where people from different walks of life, veterans, professionals, civilians just looking to help out and then they can we'll try to figure out a way for them to kind of fit in and lend their expertise or lend their their time to sort of help move this cause forward even if it's something as simple as sharing a post or organizing event to you know helping out in a more direct way Um, and if you're a veteran that's struggling we have a veteran application the way it works out is you uh, fill out the, the application uh, when we have the financial means to organize retreats. And obviously, COVID is going to slow a lot of this down. So please be patient. Uh, we'll go out to our wait list um, and we'll say, hey, we have these upcoming retreats. Let us know if your if timing works out, what you're able to help out with. Um, and then, you know, we'll connect. And as you know, fortunately, it does seem like COVID is there's a light at the end of that tunnel. And so we've really been able to position ourselves to where we hope to help a lot of vets this coming year and the years afterwards. Thank you, Jesse. That's that's tremendous. And I know um, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely other communities too: law enforcement, high performance athletics. Um, there are people that are starting to look into this as well for for healing, um, you know, from um, trauma and traumatic brain injury um, and things that, um, as you said, like. concussive, you know, um, trauma over and over again. So this is definitely a growing, a growing, um, ecosystem. And I appreciate your time and all the dedication you're giving to help others heal. Um, I'm, I'm honored to get to be part of a platform to echo the conversation. So thanks. Thanks for your time. Um, and look forward to supporting. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Bill. Uh, as I said before, it's platforms like this that really help us uh, get that message out. And as you said, that's the, the last tenet of fight. You know, we, we need everybody in this. It's not a one man fight. It's a, it's a group. Um, and so I appreciate you appreciate talking with you and you, uh, helping us share this message. Thanks very much.